All right. Will you grab a Bible? I hope you brought a Bible. We're going to read the Word of God this morning, James chapter 1. And will you stand with me again? I forgot last week. I got home and went, I didn't have him stand up for God's Word. I want to start doing this. I want to give honor to the Word of the Lord. Just humor me on it. Stand up. (laughs) It's the Word of the Lord, folks. This isn't my opinion. I actually take this, this word, listen, I take this word like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, not my will, but yours be done. If I wrote this, there's some things in here I'd probably have written differently because <laughs> I don't understand, but I have a submission to this. This is what's going to direct my life in every possible way. So I just ask you to, to stand today realizing that God wants to talk to you through his word. So James chapter 1, the first book of the New Testament, written by the first pastor. You say, what do you mean the first book? It was the first New Testament book actually written down by the first pastor of the first church, by James, who rejected the idea that Jesus, his brother, his half-brother, was the Messiah. Imagine. But he had an encounter with the resurrected Jesus that changed his life, and he writes this. Let's read this together. James 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes, Jewish believers scattered, dispersed, those who are divided, those who are polarized, those who are sent out amongst the nations. Verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you've got to believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded, unstable in all that they do. And that brings us through all of the verses that we have covered so far. And if you were not careful, you would think now that James shifts gears and goes in a completely different direction. But he's not. He's giving an illustration that we find is perfectly connected between verses 8 and verse 12. Look what he begins to say in verse 9. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower for the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Now let's read the 12th verse together. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. I want to talk to every person in the room today, every single person. If you're watching on the internet right now, I want to talk to every person about the test of humility. To those of you who find yourself in humble circumstances, barely making ends meet, and to those who had it all, but you've lost everything and you're suffering that humiliation and everything in between. I'm here to say this morning that it is not in vain that the struggle has a purpose that what you are going through is worth it, God has a greater purpose than what you could ever imagine. 
There is a test of humility that God has for you. It was Christ who went through his own test, fulfilling his purpose that made it possible for for everyone, that, that no one would be excluded from a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's why... That's why Paul could write this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. Now, because of what Christ has done, because he passed his humble test, because, because he fulfilled his purpose, there is now no longer any Jew nor Greek. That's the absence of racism. <laughs> he says, now there is no longer any slave nor free. That is the absence of classism. He says, now there is neither male nor female. That's the absence of genderism. He says, we are all now one in Christ Jesus. So no matter how weak you feel or how strong you are, whether you're rich or poor or black or white or strong or or pious or you're filled with your own frailties, God says, you can boldly come now before the throne of grace and find the grace that you need to help you in your time of need. Are you ready for this this morning? All right, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, now I ask you to please speak so clearly to us. It's almost impossible for us to grasp what you wanna say here because we are so conformed in our thinking to the pattern of this world. So God, I need your help and we need your help today. So we just come to you childlike. We say, God, speak, we're listening. Fill us with your spirit. Talk to our hearts, and may we all be willing to do whatever it is that you tell us to do. In Jesus' name, and the church said, amen. Amen. You may be seated in God's presence. Like you, I'm concerned about our country. I'm really concerned that America doesn't realize that she is on her way to being like a third world country. By definition, the absence of a middle class is what constitutes a third world country. And so the gap between the haves and the have nots is increasing and growing wider and larger. The gap was closing in the industrial age when without a degree you could make a good living. You could work in a factory, you could work in a mill, You could work in a mine. You could go in and make PhD money with a GED background. The steel mills of of, uh, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and Pittsburgh, and Virginia. You could go in with a hard hat and goggles and come out with an inheritance for your children. But when the technology age came in and machines began to push out the middle class, there were many who found themselves unable or without the opportunity or did not have the awareness to adapt to the marketplace of a digital world. And so little by little, we find ourselves slipping and the middle class going away and we're becoming polarized. We are so polarized in our country today where one class is being pitted against the other. Economically polarized, politically polarized, socially polarized, racially polarized. And this is not much different than the culture to to which James was actually writing, a polarized culture. Jewish believers scattered because of persecution, divided by economic realities, dealing with classism and racism and legalism and genderism. And they just were being polarized as a people. They were religious people. And the thing about religious people, the hardest people to teach in the world are sometimes 
religious people. Because inadvertently we get so caught up in our dogma and in our systems and in our ideologies and how we think that, that we become so concrete and so absolute and so sure that we become very difficult to change. You'd be surprised, but religious people are often far less flexible than the God that they worship. And so all of us struggle with change. We've arrived into this world as products of our families of origins. We've had the deposits of previous generations that shape our patterns of thinking. We come with the baggage of brokenness, and we come with spiritual, mental, emotional problems that were passed on, certain tendencies, the patterns of the way that we think coming from the experiences of woundedness in our families. And so because of that, no change really occurs overnight. Change does not happen quickly. This is a very difficult concept to teach to a contemporary society that wants everything to happen immediately because we are accustomed to instant gratification. We want everything quick. If my head hurts, I want relief quick. If I feel pain, drug it quick. If I have trouble, I want a solution quick. If I have a dream, I want to be successful quick. If I want lunch, I, don't, I want it quick. I don't care how good it is for me or how bad it is for me. Get it to me quick because I'm in a hurry. And this is the age in which we live. And we take the patterns of the thinking of this world right now and we superimpose them upon our view of God. We place our expectations upon God by saying, God, fix it now and do it now and get me out of this now and straighten it out now. But the reality is, is that God is working change within us. The God who wants to change us and transform us wants us to know that real change takes time. Change is a process. Change is a struggle. Sometimes we don't get to see at all what God is doing, and we have to trust him by faith that he is working all things together for our good, even though we can't see it at the time. I think of my African-American brothers and sisters. Their ancestors died without ever seeing the consequences of their fight and of their struggle. They didn't get to see in their generation the massive changes that would occur, the owning of houses, the ability to work and travel and to go and to eat and to use whatever restroom and all the advancements that have been made. They didn't see that sometime in their life as they lived. They must have said, I wonder if we're living in vain. I wonder if the struggle is worth it. But the grandchildren of those ancestors who are here today would go back and say to those who came before, the pain and the struggle was all worth it. Thank you for going through what you did. And is that, is that not, yeah, that's all right. And after all, isn't that all we really want to know? That there's a purpose for what I'm going through? That it matters? Is this, is this happening in vain? Is this for anything? Is it really going to work out for my good? That's why Pastor James has been teaching us the critical mindset of being joyfully involved, not because of, not the joy because of what we're experiencing, but because 
we can see that we are going through a process of change. We can be joyful about the fact that God, who has called us out of darkness and into light, is not after some cheap momentary comfort, but he is after eternal change in our character, and that's what's going to take time. And so if we're going to be mature and complete and not lacking anything, the key quality that he is trying to develop in me and in you is perseverance. Perseverance, the ability to to hang in there and not give up and not quit and not fold without uh, prematurely trying to get out of what God may be doing in us, trusting God no matter what. And we've been learning from James that if we hang in there and if we adapt to the process by faith, we can expect the gift of supernatural peace. We can expect God to give us wisdom. We can have peace from the inside in any storm. We can ask God for direction. And he'll give it to us generously. He'll give his wisdom without finding fault. But if you really want that peace, you've got to believe and not doubt. Because a person who really doesn't trust God, who, who is unsure if, I'm not sure I'm going to like what God says. I'm not sure if he's going to, 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 I'm not sure if I'm going to agree with what he's saying to me. I'm not sure if I want to do that. And so what I do, instead of, I believe sometimes and I don't believe sometimes. I believe on this, but I don't believe on that. And in doing so, I'm a person who begins to keep all of my options open, becoming really the God in my own eyes, trying to control the world and control everyone, trying to manufacture my own peace. And God says, that person, there's one word for that person, unstable, double-minded, bobbing around like a wave on the sea, blown by every circumstance. No, no, God says uh, through James, not so should it be with you. Submit yourself instead totally to God. Become a person of faith and trust him. And my wisdom will be given to you. My peace will be given to you that is supernatural, supra-circumstantial. I will give you my peace, Jesus says, not as the world gives. I'll give you something you don't have, peace on the inside. And so having concluded all of this, James now begins to attack the problem through an illustration. He brings this discussion to an area of reality where all of us struggle, and he starts to talk about money. He says in verse 9, let the believer who finds himself in humble circumstances, who finds himself in poor circumstances, socially humiliating circumstances, economically humiliating circumstances, let the believer who finds himself in these conditions rejoice in their position. In the early church, there were not many noble, not many mighty, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians. There were, there were a, they were a group of, of poor, scattered people, dispossessed, deprived, on the run. Often they could not find a job in the new communities that they went to, victims of racism and bigotry and of injustice. James will go on to describe this in the fifth chapter where he'll begin to get very specific about the plight of the poor whose wages have been withheld and who have been defrauded in the courts and who have been uh, abused and even executed and persecuted unjustly. And so these Jews find themselves 
in this humbling, poor situation, scattered abroad, not even finding comfort in the family uh, of their country of origin, the Jewish community, because they have named the name of Christ, and so they are ostracized by their own community. They don't find any community with the Gentiles because they follow the way of a man who was crucified, and it seems as though it is cultish. And so they're ostracized by the other group. And he says to these believers who find themselves in this kind of humbling circumstance, he says, you ought to take pride in your high position. Remember your high position that you may have nothing in this world, but you have a high standing with God. You may be hungry, but I am the bread of life. You may thirst, but I am the water of life. You may uh, be poor, but I've given you true riches. You may be cast aside by people, but you have total access and you're received by me. In humility, accept your temporary circumstances and rejoice in your present condition because something about your position is enough. And he says to you and to me, stop living in the insecurity and the inferiority of who you are based on what you do not have. Maybe I should say that again. Stop living in the insecurity and the inferiority of defining who you are by what you do not have. In Christ, you have this high position, equal access, he says, to the presence of God, regardless of how much money that you make. And you would think that we wouldn't even have to defend that. But we live in a world today where both in religion and perhaps not in religion, we're being taught a different message. What's being taught is that financial prosperity is the sign of God's love. It's common then to meet people who say, God loves me, until some significant financial pressure comes along and exposes the fact that their faith is not very deep at all. At the heart of what many people embrace as faith is a set of expectations that if I'm a good person, if I try hard enough, if I'm good enough, if I read the Bible and I pray and I'm a nice person and give and and I serve in my church and all of that, then God is obliged to keep up his end of the bargain and give me a little piece of the good life. Most of us don't expect to be rich. Most of us don't expect to be famous. But there is the expectation that if we keep up our end of the bargain, God will, will have to, is supposed to give us a life of growing ease and convenience. In other words, we're saying this. If God loves me, I won't suffer economically. And although rarely spoken or ever really thought through, this pattern of thinking reveals to us how close we are and how affected we are by the consumer patterns of thinking of this world. Maybe you've secretly even thought it this way. If I'm going to suffer and I'm going to struggle, then what difference does it make if I even serve the Lord? And our thinking is revealed. But the reality is, is he the God of the rich or is he the God of the poor? Does God love a single mom who's raising her kids and working two jobs less than the person who's living in the mansion with all of their bills paid? Which one is going to require more faith in God? And did not the Bible says without faith it's impossible to please him? You can't judge a person or hold a person back or exclude them from God's love on the basis of their temporary situation. 
Why do we feel that if God has not blessed us like he's blessed somebody else, that he does not love us? Because we're the product of our generations. We're a product of our family of origins. We're damaged, we're wounded, we're broken. We don't trust God. We carry around insecurity. When God does not do what we expect him to do, when he doesn't come through in the way that we think he should come through, we get mad. We lose faith. We get bitter. People at uh, launch attacks on people, uh, secretly judging people who have more than they do, feeling a sense of inferiority and insecurity. How can you call yourself a Christian and live in a house like that? Jesus didn't live in a house like that. Well, Jesus didn't live in a house like you had either. In fact, if we really want to live like Jesus, let's you and me both sell our houses and go live outside. Because that's how Jesus did it. Why is it that we want to make God like us. Instead of saying, Lord, make us like you. Why don't we pray that prayer? Can I go deeper in this? He's a God of equality. Now, I look through all the commentaries, all of the other messages of other prayers. I I searched, I, I, I went looking for what do they have to say, and there is a shocking absence in the writing about these particular verses. So I had to just pray. (laughs) I said, God, give me what you want to say out of these verses. The Lord took me to a passage in the book of Leviticus. When was the last time you were in Leviticus? Where all your pages are stuck together in your Bible. Never even been opened. And God began to talk to me about when he, when he gave instructions on how he wanted to be worshipped and how he wanted to reveal himself to his people, he says, create for me a tabernacle where I will come and I will dwell among the people. And he says, you can't put this tabernacle over with the richest or the largest tribe of Judah. You can't put it over by Dan. You can't put it by Benjamin. You can't put it by Issachar. You can't put it all the way over by Naphtali. You've got to put it right in the center of the camp. I am going to, I I transcend all your tribes. I'm going to come right down in the middle of this camp and have access for everybody. Everybody has opportunity to the dwelling of God. Now this, my friends, was a picture, a foreshadowing of what God would do as he revealed the gospel. People had no idea building that tabernacle what God was really up to, but here's what God was doing. One day, God would, would, would step out of eternity, and he would come down into human flesh, wrapping himself in the womb of a virgin into abject poverty. He came just, as, just to where we were. He came, the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And the angel said, he is, God is, Emmanuel, God with us, the God who dwells among us, which is a good thing because even though I couldn't get to God, he started to reach out to me. God started to reach out to you. And if I call on him now, he will answer me, even me. So rich me, poor me, black me, white me, Brown me, Baptist me, Pentecostal me, Catholic me, Joe's Pool Hall me. It doesn't even matter. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord, God says, I am going to be in the center. I have equal access for everybody. And so you may be in your crisis. 
You may be in poverty, you may be in wealth. You may come high or you may come low. You can come in a storm, but you can come and he will be your God just like he's my God. I want to talk to somebody this morning who feels like you have wasted so much of your life. You've spent years in anger and unforgiveness and sin or maybe you got cut off in lust or you got pulled away and now you're just coming back to God and you're saying, oh, the years that I have wasted. But I understand that, and God would say to you that even though you got here late, I have leveled the playing field, and I've made it possible for the guy who was working in the ninth hour to be paid the same as the guy who came in the first hour. I am the God of total access and equality. I am your God. I am there in the midst of you. Do you guys understand what I'm saying to you this morning? You may be late, but you're here now. And you have as much chance to be redeemed and to be blessed and to receive the crown of life as anybody because God is the great equalizer. He's the great leveler. He says, whoever calls on me, I will be saved. And so he says to all of you who find yourself in humbling circumstances, rejoice in this high position that you can call on him and you have total access to him. And he is present there for you. And then James begins to shift his attention to the rich, to those people who have their own set of unique issues and trials and temptations and problems and and opportunities that poor people don't have to deal with. Listen to what he says in verse 10. The rich should take pride in their humiliation. That's odd, isn't it? Let the rich take joy or appropriate legitimate pride in anything that causes them to be humiliated. See, the problem is trying to figure out who is he talking to? Who are these rich people? Because nobody will admit to being rich. (laughs) Nobody says, well, that's me he's speaking to because rich is a moving target. Rich is always about double and the next category beyond your current state. Isn't that right? Rich is always somebody else. So let's just level the floor. If you made $35,000 a year last year, that puts you in the top 4% of the richest people in the world. Woo-hoo. That means that you're more wealthy than 96% of everybody else in the whole world. All the people, the, the, the 3.4 billion people who live on $2 a day or less. If, if you made $45,000 a year in the last year, you're in the top 1% of the wealthiest people in the world. Now, I know you didn't get excited about that at all. I can see your excitement. I can see you turning to your wife, honey, he told us we're rich. I'm glad I came to church today. That did nothing to change your financial situation. You see, some people will call you rich, but you don't feel that you're rich because all you feel is pressure. But you know, rich is not amount. Rich is margin. Rich is having margin. Rich is having more than enough. And James is going to come and talk about margin specifically in just a little bit. We'll come back to it later. But make no mistake about it, when James is speaking to us, he's, he's talking to us here. In fact, I understand there are people here today that you struggle financially. You, you may have lost your job and you don't know how you're going to pay your bills or, or you're still reeling from the economic impact of a divorce or you got yourself through some bad decisions so involved in debt under this crushing pressure you don't even know how you're going to make it through. But the point is, there are still people in this world who would look at you as rich 
And because you don't feel rich, and because you don't have any margin, you don't have peace. And if we don't recognize, though, who we are, we'll forever just skip over verses like this in the Bible and say, that doesn't apply to me. But it applies. We just don't have margin as such. We don't have peace. I was talking to a man this last week. He told me this incredible story of coming out of nothing, poverty, terrible family situation, single mom, trying to make ends meet, all kinds of ways to make ends meet. And he had this dream, one day if I could just make enough money to be successful and prosperous. And I was in awe as I listened to this rags to riches story. From where he began to now private planes and multiple houses and exotic cars and everything that you and I would ever dream of. And I was excited about this story. But then the story shifted and he talked to me about how over a period of time he had lost everything. And it was gone. And he told me this. He said, you know, the funny thing was I didn't have any peace when I didn't have anything. And now looking back from the position of not having anything, I look back to when I had it all and I didn't have any peace either. And all I really, really want is peace on the inside. That's all I'm really looking for is just to have some peace. And so the question I have for you this morning is what if everything that's going on in your life is exactly the way that it's supposed to be? What if God is in total control? What if he is orchestrating all of the circumstances? James is saying you need to be humbled. Every one of us do. You need to accept the process of wherever you are, that God is humbling you, and the more humble you are, the, more, uh, the less uh, self-dependent you are, and the more like Jesus Christ that you'll be. Sometimes it's only when you've been brought to a low place where you have absolutely nothing, where you are uh, humbled in life socially or you're humbled in life economically or you've lost all your status. Only then are you willing to say, oh God, I need you in my life. Oh God, please make me your child. You're finally ready to surrender and to figure things out his way. That's when you find out when true riches are. James says that the life that you're in right now is so short and your circumstances are so temporary at most it's just for this life. And so what if God is just shifting things around to bring you to a place of humility so that he can begin his real work of transformation in you? He shifts the illustration to agriculture and to the climate that every one of these people would understand who's reading his letter. He says, let the Rich take pride in their humiliation since they'll pass away like a wildflower for the sun rises with this scorching heat and, and withers the plant, the blossom falls and is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even though they go about their business. This is all very temporary. The stuff fades. Not the rich fades, but all the stuff fades. The people James wrote about understood exactly what he's talking about. Those wildflowers in Israel that pop up in February and are burned to a crisp by May, they knew exactly what he saying with his little illustration, everything eventually burns. Everything is fleeting. And so he says, let the poor rejoice in the humble temporary circumstances that you find yourself in because you have a high position. Let go of your prejudice. Let go of your intimidation. Let go of your inferiority and begin to live by faith as the child of God that you are. When the rich uh, when the rich find themselves in humiliation, rejoice because when the bottom falls out and the market drops and you begin to find yourself in need, that's only then do you pro- recognize maybe how much you've isolated yourself. 
that you've become aloof, that you've not recognized your need for relationships, that God has prepared for you in the body of Christ, but there's something about becoming increasingly more prosperous that isolates us, and we only associate with people who are like us or above us, and we miss out this great vision of the unity of the body of Christ that he has where a rich man or a poor man would both come with the spirit of Christ and in humility together and be one. I don't know if I'm getting through or not. Don't just praise God for blessing. Praise him for making you humble. That's when he's doing his best work in you. He's doing his best work when he's humbling your spirit because when you're humble, that's when the spirit of Christ can come into you. And when the spirit of Christ comes into the one who's in humble circumstances and calls out to God, The rich man who's in his humiliation calls out to God and says, oh God, I need you. That's when that spirit takes two people that would normally be divided and makes them one. The rich Christian relaxes their grip on all the stuff that they think is so important and begins to truly live. They stop obsessing over what they might lose and they become free. And the poor man quits stressing over what he doesn't have and obsessing about inferiority and what they, haven't, what they have not achieved. In this humility is where we really realize who we are in Christ. And that's exactly what, what James is talking to us. That's the intent of God in your life and mine. So let everybody rejoice. Everybody in this room, when we have the opportunity to be humbled because we'll be blessed. That's why he says, blessed is the one who perseveres, who just hangs in there under the trial, because having stood the test, that person, rich or poor, will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, my dad was raised the youngest son of Depression-era farmers. They endured the Great Depression. They lost everything in the Great Depression. They lost the farm, they lost the cattle, they lost the machinery, and they were reduced to living in a shed with cracks in the slats that they filled with newspaper to stop the 40 below zero winds of the plains of western Saskatchewan in winter. He tells me stories of how there was one meal in a day, and it was the same meal, it was potato soup. (laughs) that they grew themselves. That's what they lived on. He was raised by these aging parents in total poverty, without the right clothes. They lived on the wrong side of the tracks. They went to the wrong church, ostracized. My dad grew up with a speech impediment. He was afraid to speak in public. He was mocked and, and, and challenged and, and, and harassed in his school. But he was raised with some people of incredible faith and endurance and some people who called out to God and who praised God anyway and formed in his heart at an early age a hunger and a desire for God that at the age of 13, he'd kneel at an altar of a church and say, Lord God, you can have my stuttering tongue. You can have my life. You can use me any way that you want. And if all the people in his life who are watching him had, if they'd been God, he'd have never made it. But God would choose him and pick him up and raise him and call him and send him off as a missionary to a foreign field where his life would begin to impact literally thousands of people, 
Dozens of churches planted, hundreds of people accepting Christ, young men, young Timothys in the ministry who he sent to Bible school and developed and became pastors. Some of those churches in the thousands today. And the legacy of those Depression-era farmers who just simply trusted God, they would have no idea of the impact of their faith. They couldn't see what God was up to. And he really couldn't see what... And I wonder what his impact was and what that, how that affects me and how that shapes me and the faith that's in the core of my soul and how now that affects you and how that blesses out into our community through all of us. We don't see what God is up to. He is doing more than your individual personal little comfort. In fact, the God who has leveled the playing field, the great equalizer who makes it possible for any person to come, whatever their economic background or situation, to simply come. And if my dad could come in faith and God could use him, what can he do through me? And what can he do through you? And what legacy can we give to our children of faith and endurance and perseverance in God? Isn't that amazing? That's exactly what's going on. Every now and then, every now and then, God will just start to bless some people, people whom nobody approves of so that he can tell the generation there is still a God and I can bless who I want to bless and I can use who I want to use. I choose anybody. I've made equal access for anyone. There is now neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's not male or female. You are all one in Christ. And maybe one day soon, rich and poor and black and white and Hispanic and Asian and men and women, we'll all come out of our little tribes and we'll embrace the global vision of a God who understands that through the sacrifice of one man, all of us can become one with equal access to God, with equal passion for the mission of God. Hermanos y hermanos, te necesitamos. Te necesitamos. Somos iguales con Cristo. Every one of us, every one of us, equal access to God. And if you're a believer, the scriptures go on to say in verse 29, if you are Christ, you're part of Abraham's seas. You are an heir of the promise of God. And so if you're a believer, you are an heir of God. You're receiving a crown of life. In fact, this that you call a Bible, you know what this is? This is a will. This is the last will and testament of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And contained within this book are the promises of God. Who can I be? Who can I become? What does he say that I can have? What does he say that I can do? If you'll stop looking at this through religious churchy eyes and you'll realize that God has a word for you every single day and a promise to, be, to, to lift you up out of your circumstances and make you the child of God that you're supposed to be. Whether you see it or not right now is irrelevant. He is working in you and through you. Do I have anybody that's a witness to this today at all? Now, some of you may feel like you're in the worst place right now. God is using everything. I mean, everything that's happening. He is using it for your good. If you love God, have you say, God, you be my leader, you be my Lord. He is working everything together for your good. The question is, will you pass the test of humility? The humility to say, I'm not God. I don't know what's going on, but I don't have to know. God, I trust you. I seek you.
Let's just pray together right now. Why don't you do that? Why don't you ask him? God, help me to pass this test. Some of you right now need to say, God, thank you for humbling me. I have never thanked you for that before. I've griped and complained and I've doubted you and I have just been mad. But God, today I, I'm humbled and uh, I'm thankful for what you're doing in me. You're my leader. You're my Lord. I trust you now. I trust what you're doing in me. You say, yes, God, that's me. Some of you right now need to say, oh God, in my humble circumstances, I praise you that you are with me. You're never going to leave me or forsake me. You'll never, ever leave me. I can trust you now more than ever. Yes, God, that's me. Some of you just say, Jesus Christ, come into my life and be my Lord and Savior. I have wandered off. I have gotten lost. I have strayed. I've gotten too busy. I've tried to make my own peace. I'm manipulating everything trying to control everyone and everything I know better you're God and I am not I humble myself before you and invite you to totally take control of my life today if that's you right now say it with all your heart yes God that's me that's me Jesus Christ make us one rich and poor white and black Asian and Hispanic and every other color. Lord, just make us one. Whatever our class, our background, unite our hearts together. Yes, God. That's us. And use us any way you want for your glory. We surrender totally to you. In Jesus' name. And everybody said together with a great shout. Amen. You receive that today. Isn't that a good word from the Lord? Amen. Keep coming back. I love you. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Darren.